0: I'll tell you. Did you hear that? I'm out of practice on this. I appreciate Dave covering for me while I was out. (laughs) You know, life is all about perspective, isn't it? You either lost or you came in second place. The question this morning is for you, is God sovereign or does man have free will? What do you think? Yes, I'm going to answer that question for you this morning. The answer is yes, God is sovereign and man has free will. The church historically has struggled with this question, though, haven't they? You look at church history and even from the time of Augustine and Pelagius and the 400s and even up to the reformation with with the arminians and calvinism dueling over the issue and even in our day the issue is still at stake in fact most of the churches today are arminian and we in fact here are probably a minority position now did you know that we believe that god is sovereign that he controls all things providentially and brings about his purposes according to his sovereign will how many of you believe that amen so this business that man has free will i would say is confined to the idea that it's like i'm going to use my daughter as an illustration i don't want to embarrass her but it's like when we go look at a dress and we say well you can have the blue dress or you can have the gray dress And there's a whole store full of dresses, but we've confined her options to these. That's kind of how man's free will works along with God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. There are a million choices out there in the world, but our freedom only exists up to the point where God's sovereignty intervenes. Our choices are limited to what God allows us to choose. So in some senses, yes, we have free will, But understand that your free will, apart from the grace of God, would always choose self. It would always choose self. It would always choose what makes you feel good, not the glory of God. I think that's important to understand because the day and age that we live in, open theists have written a lot of books. I've got ten of them on my shelf. I had to write a big paper in seminary on this issue. But the open theists are suggesting to us today that it doesn't make sense what the Arminians are saying, that God somehow looks down the corridors of time. He knows what we're going to choose, and therefore he chooses it, and so he is sovereign. What the open theists are telling us is that God intentionally limited his sovereignty so that he could enter into a relationship with man, and they could both grow and learn and discover together. So God doesn't know the future perfectly in the open theist world. He knows the past perfectly, sort of knows the present, but has no idea what's coming in the future. An illustration of this would be in Genesis 22, where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, and God says, now I know that you fear me. As if God did not know that beforehand, but this is the premise that they suggest. So we live in a world where this sort of heretical, unbiblical teaching is being propagated in the seminaries and in the churches and people are soaking it up because we don't believe in Arminianism necessarily anymore, but we don't want to ascribe more sovereignty to God, so we're going to ascribe more freedom to man. That's the solution. That God is not sovereign in this universe. But that is what garbage is circulating out there right now. One only has to think of some New Testament passages like Acts chapter 2, right? Where the Apostle Peter himself said that Christ was crucified according to what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You cannot read the book of Isaiah. Chapters 40 to 48 are a diatribe against all the false gods who don't know anything. But God knows the future and not only knows it, but he brings it to pass. Acts chapter 4, we're told that God had gathered those people there in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion for the specific purpose of putting Christ to death. That was according to God's plan. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says that God has appointed the day and the man who is going to judge the world. He's appointed the day of judgment and the judge. Beloved, God has an eternal plan, and he is sovereign over it, and he uses providence to bring about that plan according to his purposes. And I would just say we need to affirm that truth here this morning, and we need to reconcile it with the fact that believers suffer. Believers suffer all the time. In fact, many of you have probably come here this morning with some sort of pain in your life. And so, I think this message for me is one of wanting to encourage you. This is a kinder, gentler, Pastor Nikotra. <laughs> I want to encourage you. And the way we're going to do that is we're, we're going to look at, really, three instruments in the book of Ruth that God uses to discipline his people. There are times when God uses pain, and we know this because of Hebrews, right? Hebrews 12 tells us, as a loving father, God disciplines his children, and it doesn't seem pleasant at the moment we're going through it, but that God uses pain to discipline us. So this morning, I want to deal with three instruments in the book of Ruth that God uses to discipline his people so that we will find rest in his providence. We will embrace it. We will embrace the sovereignty of God. Of course, providence and complete sovereignty leads to a second question. Well, if God is sovereign over everything, then why is there evil in the world? That is that is the difficult question, and I'm not going to answer that question this morning. But I will say this, <clears throat> God is sovereignly in control over evil and he uses it for his purposes. He is not the author or the originator of evil, but he subjects it to his will and his purposes. Therefore, even bad things which occur in our lives are good, according to Romans 8. God causes all things, right? All things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. All things. And it doesn't just say He uses them. God sort of takes a bad situation and makes it good. It says God causes all things. It's what we call the doctrine of confluence. All things working together for the purposes of God in your life. So, let me just give you a little background in the book of Ruth. I don't want to take a lot of time to do this. If you're there already, great. But the story of Ruth is really about Naomi. I think the book is mistitled. If you read chapter one, you find that Naomi is the one whose husband has died. She's been taken off the land to Moab, right? Her husband, Elimelech, which means my God is king, has died. And her two sons, Madlon and Kilion have died. She is bereft of her entire family. She has left everything she knows, and the story is about her and her loss. Ruth is her Moabite daughter-in-law, and the story, in a sense, focuses on on Ruth in that Ruth is going to be the instrument that God uses to redeem Naomi. Naomi. If you look at chapter 1, it's Naomi that's the issue. Naomi goes back to her people and her land. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. It's about Naomi. Naomi can't have any more kids, so her sons cannot, uh, her daughters-in-laws, daughter-in-laws cannot remarry. So the story is about Naomi. If you look at chapter 4, just flip over there very quickly with me. I'm going to give away the ending here as if you didn't know it already, but Ruth ends up marrying Boaz, right? And look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Then the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to who? Naomi. Naomi has been redeemed. This is what this story is all about. It's about the kinsman redeemer and Naomi being redeemed by a close relative. Secondly, as I said, uh, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband. You know, I was going to try to preach without my glasses on because they're fogging up, but I'm not going to be able to do it. I can't see a thing. (laughs) Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This man, Boaz, is what's known as a goel, a kinsman redeemer, a close relative, somebody in the family who is qualified to do a Leverite marriage. In other words, when the husband dies of somebody, the brother could marry in order to redeem them, and they would not lose their inheritance in the property and in the land. So this is what's known as a Leverite marriage. And Boaz is a Goel. So the story of Ruth is about Naomi, and it's about Naomi being redeemed by this Goel. But the third major theme in this is really what I want to focus on, and this is God's providential dealing in bringing about the birth of King David. This whole story is part of the writings. It was written much later than the book of Judges, even though it takes place during the period of the Judges. But the whole point of it is Israel knew that David was their link to the Old Testament promises. He was the last one that God entered into a covenant with. And so they knew that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. And so if you go to chapter 4 and you see how the book ends, how does it end? With a genealogy. And the genealogy is for the last name, the last person, the last thing mentioned in the book is David. And so what we're finding out about here is David's ancestors, how the birth of David came about and God's providential dealings with Ruth and Naomi and how they were redeemed and this Gentile foreigner Moabite is led into the line of Christ. That's good news for you and I. But this is God's providential dealings in their life. And how do I know? Because the beginning of the book talks about the hand of the Lord going against Naomi, God visiting his people in verse 6 and giving them food, the Lord blessing them with the conception in chapter 4, verse 13, and right smack dab in the middle of the book in chapter 2, we have this uh, statement that Ruth somehow happened to come to the field of this kinsman redeemer. She, her chance chanced upon this field, is how it literally reads. So in in between these statements of complete divine sovereignty on the front end and the back end, in the middle you have this this statement of, it just happened to come about. And so we know that what's happening here is God is working behind the scenes, bringing about his perfect will in the lives of his people. So, as I said, we're going to focus on that this morning. What I really want to talk to you about is how human life intersects with the will of God and the plan of God? Is man free or is God sovereign? You know the answer to that question. The first instrument that God uses to discipline his people, let's look at verse 1. As I told you, this is a kinder, gentler me, and so we're looking at darkness. We're looking at drought And we're looking at death this morning. It says, now, when it came about in the days when the judges governed, literally it says when the judges judged. In the days when the judges judged. And what we're talking about here is moral darkness. You don't have to think too long to remember what the days of the judges were like, right? This was the time period when the nation had come into the land Joshua had conquered the kings, he had given the land over to the people, and now it was their obligation to possess the land. And in possessing the land, they were to dispossess its inhabitants. But you'll remember, the nation did not do a very good job at that, right? They did not dispossess the people like they were supposed to, and so God left these pagan nations there to be a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. He intentionally, again, this is a statement of God's sovereignty, He intentionally left His people there to chastise His people, to be a thorn in their side. If you look at Judges chapter 2, verses 9-11, to 11, I guess you don't need to turn there, but I'll just reference it later. It describes these seven cycles of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and security. We're all familiar with, probably with these cycles, but it's a downward spiral in the book of Judges. The Judges start out pretty good, but by the time you get to the later Judges, you're dealing with pretty corrupt guys. They're not really quality men. They're Judges, and God empowers them, but it's kind of like picking the best of the worst. I hope you had a light breakfast this morning, because I want to talk to you a little bit about the cultural morality because it's typified in a few vignettes in the book of Judges. Just a few little pictures to give you some idea of what this time frame was like and what the author was after in writing the book. And so, you'll remember the story of Ehud, right? I mean, you remember Ehud, the left-hander. You remember that story about the dagger going into Eglon's gut, right? And him pulling it out, and the guy's entrails spill out all over the ground? That's a pretty graphic story, isn't it? As brut- brutal violence is what we're talking about here. Remember the tent peg in the guy's skull? That's pretty graphic, isn't it? You don't read anything like this in the rest of Scripture. I remember my Hebrew professor telling me how the, the Hebrew verbs work in that story. It's designed to be like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It, it, it's like you, you see her picking up the mallet you see her picking the t- up the tent peg, and then the verbs change, and you hear the crack of the mallet. And, you, and then you see his skull nailed to the ground. It's designed to be graphic. It's designed to come across as violent. As I said, the judges deteriorate. You talk about Jephthah. What was Jephthah? He was born of a harlot, right? He had a harlot for a mother. What about Samson? You get to the end of the book of Judges, and Samson marries a Philistine. He marries a Philistine. He's a man given over to fleshly lust. You get to chapter 18. Most people don't know this because they've changed the language a little bit. But when you get to 18.3, let's turn there. Turn to Judges 18.3. It says, when they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. And they turned aside there and said to him, who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? They recognized his voice. Why did they recognize his voice? Look over at verse 30. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, The son of Manasseh, look in your margin note, is a descendant of Moses. The very descendant of Moses, the lawgiver of Israel, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. They have sold out and they're now priests to these graven images. The very son of Moses, the grandson of Moses, I should say. You get to the end of the book and you read about the, the violation and the dismemberment of the concubine. You remember that lovely story? The, the civil war that resulted between the Benjamites and the rest of Israel almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. The execution of all the men and non-virgins in Jabesh Gilead. And then 400 virgins were given to the Benjamites to keep them from extinction. These are dark days, and the the repeated phrase over and over and over again is what? There was no king in the nation of Israel, and everybody did what? They did what was right in their own eyes. Sad, sad time. And it's all a matter of perspective. You know, I, I can't think of a worse time to be born into the nation. I can't think of a worse time to have the decks stacked against a person, right? Your life is hard, and it's partially it's hard because of the the culture that you're living in, the time and the place that you're living in. These were dark, dark days in, in the nation's history, but God was at work. God was there, and He was working behind the scenes. So in the darkest of times, God had a plan for Naomi and Ruth to be part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing, amazing thing. We read Matthew 1. We read that genealogy in Matthew and we see Ruth's name there. Amazing. You know, if you don't know the history behind that, come to the book of Ruth and you read it and you go, wow, she's a Moabite. What is she doing in the line of Christ? See, I used to say that I didn't want to have kids. I used to say I don't want to have kids. I don't want to bring them into this evil, cruel world. Right? How many of you have said that? You faithless people. I confess I was acting like a faithless pagan. That was, that was wrong on my part. It's much worse now than it's ever been. Really? Is that true? Is that true? Think of the early church. What were they dealing with? They were being used as human torches in the gardens of the of the Caesar. Caesar Nero had a 12-year-old boy tried to have him converted to a girl and married him in a public ceremony. You think it's worse now than it was back then? But but look how the believers responded to that moral darkness. They lit the world on fire for the gospel. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? It can be discouraging, no doubt, to live in a time of moral debauchery if you're a believer. I read the newspapers. I see all the headlines. I get pretty discouraged sometimes. If you lose your perspective. If you lose your perspective. You either see tragedy and depression and sorrow and grief, or you see abundant opportunity. There are opportunities abounding, beloved, for the gospel. God doesn't come to people who don't need him. He comes to people who do need him, and he comes to us in circumstances. This story of Ruth In the Old Testament, in in the book of Judges in particular, it's like a jeweler when you go to pick out that wedding ring, right? What's he do? He takes it out and he sticks it against black velvet so that it'll stick out and it'll look even brighter. And that's, yes, the climate was dark, but the light of God shines through it. The light of the grace of God. Do you see hopelessness or do you see opportunity? Do you believe in God's providence and His ordering of all things or do you wither in despair? God is sovereign. John Calvin believed that God was sovereign even over the flitting of a butterfly's wings. They call it meticulous providence. He believed in providence down to the nth degree. See, our hope lies in the fact That God controls all things and orchestrates all things according to his eternal plan and purpose. Right? Aren't you hoping in that this morning? I am. I am. See, think about it with me. God was the one who had redeemed Israel. He had established his covenant with them. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had brought them up to the promised land. He had given them everything and even given them over to their oppressors to chastise them. At this point in time, the sovereignty of God is never more clear. God is orchestrating everything for his purposes, and sometimes that includes suffering. Sometimes that includes pain. And because God has to use pain at times to wake his people up, God's people become lazy without pain. Classic formulation in theology would tell us that God knows all contingencies, but he does nothing contingently. What does that mean? That means that he knows every possible combination out there of how things are going to interplay, but it doesn't influence his decision making at all. His plan is sovereign, it is divine. It is eternal, and he uses everything to bring about his purposes, including pain in your life. Including pain. Walter Elwell says this, There is unquestionably a great mystery here as to how a holy God, who cannot even look upon evil, can work his will through evil. But that he does it is, is the clear teaching of Scripture. If something could get outside the will of God, it would become a God unto itself and a rival to God. Such can never be the case. God alone is God. There is no other. Do you believe that this morning? We're living in a time of recession. Terrorists abound. There are wars. Gay marriage is in the headlines now. We live in a time of moral darkness. But we also live in a time of abundant opportunity. Would you agree? So the second instrument that God uses to discipline His people is drought. So He said this is an uplifting message. Look at verse 1. There was a famine in the land. Okay? It's not bad enough living in dark days... But now there's a famine in the land, and this man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab. He went to the territory of the enemy in a time of drought. He took his wife and his two sons, and they entered the land of Moab, and they stayed there probably about ten years. Probably about ten years. Long enough for the husband to die and the two sons. But there's a famine in the land, which resulted from a drought. And you may think, well, a drought, right? An act of God, a natural occurrence. And this is a, there's, there's tremendous irony in this story. For those of you who like literature, there's tremendous irony here. Because Bethlehem means house of bread in the Hebrew. And there's no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine. And so what does he do? He takes his wife and kids somewhere where there is food. And let's just say on the front side, we don't really know what it's like to experience famine and drought. You know, if our water supply at home runs a little short, we just run to the grocery store. Or we turn on a garden hose. Somehow, some way, we have the means and the ability to replenish our water system. When you live in a country as they did in this time, there's no rain, the crops wither, the animals die, nobody eats, everybody starves. You have to do what you have to do to survive. I understand that. And I don't want to be overly hard on Elimelech, but understand that I think even though he took his family somewhere in order to feed them, that he sinned in doing so. He sinned in that choice. And I'll prove it to you. Droughts were not uncommon in biblical times. God used them a lot of the time to accomplish his will, right? You remember your Old Testament. You remember the book of Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 26, Genesis 46. God used drought and famine to move his people around on the chessboard. That's what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. But there is something else going on here the curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 would tell us that the skies would be like bronze and they would not give up their reign if the people indulged in idolatry. That's exactly what was going on here, right? This is the time of the judges. They indulged in idolatry, and so God shut up the heavens and caused a drought. It is a direct result of their disobedience. Later on, we see the same thing in Hosea 4, 1-3. You can see the animals withering, the land drying up, the fish have no water. Everything is under the curses of the covenant because the nation has slipped from their obedience to God's will. These curses are not meant as a way to punish God's people. They're meant to bring about repentance. They're meant to and designed to bring about repentance to bring them back to God and to the covenant they made with Him. And you say, well, well, weren't they hungry and starving? Yes, they were. Well, what did God expect from them? What does God expect from His people when there's a famine? Well, turn with me, if you will, all the way to the book of Amos. Let's, Let's go a little bit to the right here. Hosea, Joel, Amos. I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 4 and look at verse 7. You can actually go up to verse 6. I should have started it back at verse 6. But here God says, but I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. That's famine. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. The famine had the specific purpose of bringing God's people back to himself. Furthermore, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7 of Amos. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there was still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city I I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the, other, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. These are the curses of the covenant. If you continue to read, you get blight and mildew and locusts in verse 9. You get plagues and military defeat in verse 10. You get utter devastation in verse 11, and yet the continuing refrain is, you still have not returned to me. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? And then you get to verse 12, and it's, it's yikes. I, I even wrote in my Bible, to the left margin, yikes. Because it says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Uh Uh-oh. It sends shivers down my spine. He says, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Prepare to meet me in battle. That is... Is an ominous thought. That is an ominous thought. God, who controls everything, including the thoughts of men, he is raising up Babylon. He is going to raise up Assyria. He is going to raise up Greece. He's going to raise up Persia. He's going to bring these people in to chastise his people, but not destroy them completely because of his covenant with them. Look at Jeremiah chapter 5. Real quick, go to the left, just to further bring this point home. I guess what I wanted you to see there is the fact that God brings rain on one city and not another, so people stagger from one city to the other to find water to drink, and God's the one that brings the rain, right? Jeremiah 5, 24 to 25 They Do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have withheld good from you. God is the one who provides the rain. And the irony here is that Baal is known as the storm god. Baal is, according to Canaanite theology, if you want to call it that. Baal is the one who is the fertility god who provides rain. He's the god of the storm. The direct contrast to that is that the god of Israel is the one who controls everything. The other gods are nothing but false gods. God is the one who provides the rain in its season. I have one more for you. Turn to Jer- uh, corrections, Psalm 33. Flip over to Psalm 33. Verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. So what's the point? What does God expect from His people in a time of famine? They expect faith. Expect faith and repentance, not going somewhere else to get the food. Warren Wearsby said it this way, It's better to starve in the will of God than to take bread from the enemy. It's better to starve in the will of God than to take bread from the enemy. So instead of repenting and trusting God, this man Elimelech, as I said, the irony there is his name means my God is king forsook his inheritance, took his family off the land and went and dwelled in the territory of the enemy to survive the famine. In the providence of God, however, all of this is taking place according to the sovereign purposes of God because in his eternal plan, sometimes pain needs to come before blessing. God preserved Naomi and Ruth, because he had a plan for them to be part of the lineage of Christ, only to bless them beyond belief. Think of all the human decisions which intersect with God's plan at this point, right? Elimelech deciding to go over to Moab. The the two sons deciding to marry Moabite women. They thought they were doing what they wanted to do, but in the orchestration and plan of God, he was bringing about his purposes. fascinating to me what is God's will for your life it's what you just did that's the answer unless it violates some precept of God in scripture God's will for your life is whatever you just did you, you do have freedom within the boundaries of what God has said is okay there is no target there is no center of the target you know I've got to hit the bullseye or I'm not in the will of God. You don't know what the bullseye is. Right? If you do, let me know. I'd like to know. Jerry Bridges said it this way. He said, we do have a responsibility to make wise decisions or to discover the will of God, whichever term we may prefer to use. But God's plan for us is not contingent upon our decisions. God's plan is not contingent at all. God's plan is sovereign. It includes our foolish decisions as well as our wise ones. That, beloved, is a good picture of the sovereignty of God. Even when you screw up and make a bad decision, guess what? It's in the plan and purpose of God. Is God sovereign or not? Is it possible for us to frustrate his plans? Does he respond to the things that we do? No, we respond to what he is doing. We need to get our arms around this because this is where believers fall off the wagon. This is where they start to have trouble, is because I'm a victim. I'm a, I'm a victim, and, and these circumstances are, are not what I want. And once you start saying that it's what I want and not what God wants, then you begin to get a little frustrated. And then the frustration mounts and the frustration builds and pretty soon you can't take it anymore because you're not getting what you want and you're not knowing what the will of God is. And so you start reading horoscopes and you start going to palm readers to try to understand what the future for your life holds. You don't have any answers beyond the fact that you have freedom to do what you want to do as long as it does not violate God's revealed will. We need to repent of that kind of thinking. Even when you're in a difficult situation, you may be experiencing pain in your life right now. You may have come here this morning, and you are in a world of hurt. And the people sitting around you don't have any idea. And I'm telling you this morning, you need to ask yourself a question. Number one, is my pain being caused by my own disobedience? Have I got myself into this corner? And if you have, you need to repent. You know, the question is, am I being chastised by God right now because of my disobedience? Is God trying to refine me right now? And yet, even that is subjective because it's possible that God is just bringing pain into your life to grow you in Christ's likeness. It may not be because of disobedience. So, how do I know what the will of God is? Well, sometimes the righteous suffer because God wants them to. Just ask Job. You know, you read Job chapter 3, and that man was in a state of despair. He wished he had never been born. Or if he had been born, why, why don't I just be stillborn? Or why do I have to go through this pain? It's too much to bear. Well, God has revealed some clear statements of his will in the Scriptures, right? We've been going through the book of Romans. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us what the will of God is. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2 tells us what the will of God is. This is the will of God for you, right? That you abstain from sexual immorality, your sanctification. These things are the will of God for your life. It could start there. A long time ago I heard this statement it says, The providence of God is the pillow that we rest our head on at night. I've always remembered that, because what gives you comfort on the sleepless nights? It is that God is sovereign over everything, including the pain. God is sovereign. Lastly, the last instrument God uses to discipline his people, he uses darkness, he uses drought, and the third one is death. And this is a hard one. This is a hard one for us. Verse 3, chapter 1, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Then both Malone and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Verse 5. The text speaks for itself, doesn't it? Tragedy strikes. This woman loses everything, and with the men in the family goes her inheritance. She is out. She is destitute. She is broken. She has nothing left but a couple of two... A couple of two. (laughs) Correction but two Moabite daughters-in-law. It's like me being stuck with my two cockapoos. You know what I'm saying? This is it? This is what I can expect? I don't know why the men died. It doesn't really say. The text doesn't really tell us. But a tip is that the word mahlon in the Hebrew actually means sick. So one of them may have been a sickly sort of fellow. So when they got over to Moab, they died. And as I said, the tragedy here, if you look at the text with me, is that Naomi is beyond childbearing years. So she's lost it all, and there's no possibility that she could even have more children. And even if she could have more children, there's no possibility that they'd grow up fast enough for these two Moabite daughter-in-laws to marry. They're all out of luck. They are all hopelessly out of luck. They are destitute. They're going to go back because they, they heard that the Lord has brought food to Bethlehem. So they're going to go back for the food and hope that they can glean in the fields to make some sort of living for themselves, to just get the scraps from the corners of the field. According to the law, they were supposed to be allowed to do that. Naomi went out full, And she says she has come back empty. Naomi, by the way, ironically means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. But she tells people in verse 20 to call her Mara. Mara means bitter. She used to be pleasant. She used to have a husband and two sons and lots to look forward to. And she has come back empty and bitter. She has nothing left. And notice, verse 13, that she rightly attributes the situation to who? Not her husband. She doesn't blame her husband. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Drop down to verse 21. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. She understands the situation rightly. She understands it. This is from the hand of God. I can't begin to imagine the grief involved in losing a spouse. And on top of that, losing your children. Outliving your children, I think, must be one of the most horrible tragedies a person can ever face. And in this case, Naomi lost her husband and both of her sons within a 10-year time span. Imagine, if you will, moving away, leaving all of your close relatives, leaving your family, leaving your church, and going somewhere else, and having your immediate family all die. And you're all alone. That's what this situation is. Grief is probably one of the most disorienting things a believer can ever overcome. Logically, we understand that everybody is going to die, right? We know that, right? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We all are going to die. Yet somehow, we are never prepared for it. Ever. It always is a shock to us. It is disorienting. It's it's like those Air, Air Force pilots, they, they throw them into a pool and they flip them upside down and they have to unbuckle themselves and try to get back to the surface. It's disorienting. It's, it's, it screws you up mentally. You don't know which way is up and which way is down. It's just grief. It's just grief. And many of you have lost your loved ones. My wife and I say all the time, I don't, I don't know how people grieve without the Lord. I don't know how they get through it. I don't know how they get through the loss of loved ones without Christ. But the difficult thing to watch as a pastor is when believers grieve as though they have no hope. Beloved, that should not be. We have hope. We have hope because of the resurrection. And I'm not denying the pain involved in grieving. Believe me, I'm not. But if we believe in the power of God, then does anybody die outside the will of God? Or does anybody die at the wrong time? Is God sovereign, or is He not? Ruth lost her husband, but if she had not lost him, She would never have married Boaz. She would never have gone to Israel. She would not have become the grandmother of David or the ancestor of the Messiah. It was all part of the plan and purpose of God. We know that God causes all things. Say it with me. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that this morning? See, God doesn't have a plan B, beloved. There is no plan B. There is only plan A. God does not use duct tape and try to fix our broken messes. God does not take crummy circumstances and go, I'll try to make the best of it here. We'll see what we can come up with. There is only plan A. There is only plan A. In the sovereign will of God, somehow God subjects evil to his purposes. He works it all together for the good of his elect and brings about his purposes at the same time. Frankly, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. I'm glad I'm not God. I can't even manage my calendar. When grief overtakes you I want you to remember something for me. Remember this phrase, what is real reality? What is real reality here? Okay? Real reality. God is all knowing, all loving, all powerful and he has brought the pain into my life for a reason. For a reason. God's purposes Are beyond our knowledge we don't have all the facts God does and he intends it all for our good our perspective is so finite and limited we don't always see what God is doing but we can trust in his goodness and his providence and his sovereignty he uses pain for his purposes to move his people along the path of his will like a surgeon. He's told his patient, I may hurt you, but I will not injure you. Matthew Henry says, Extraordinary extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. Grace at work in your life may mean pain. Because God loves you. God loves you, and according to Hebrews 12, He can and will use any means at His disposal to conform you to the image of Christ, because that's what He has promised that He would do. This Puritan in 1671, I think, for me, hit the nail on the head. He said, The more afflictions you have been under, the more assistance you have had for this life of holiness. Let me read that to you again. You can get your arms around this one. This is a good view of the sovereignty of God. The more afflictions you've been under, the more assistance you have had for this life of holiness. That, beloved, is a person who understands God's providence and has a right view of reality. I pray that God would grant you that same perspective this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, your word is so helpful to us. Father, these stories at times seem so detached for us. We can read them in isolation and not really feel what the people were going through at the time. I pray, Lord, that would not be the case this morning, that we would understand the pain and the loss and the sorrow that Ruth and Naomi were experiencing, and yet they turned to you, our Father, in faith and in belief and, and trusted by faith that you would provide for their needs and their care. Father, if they only knew the great plans you had for them coming in the near future, how they would have rejoiced at the pain knowing that blessing was coming later. Father, I pray that would be our perspective. All suffering for a time seems difficult. Father, the pains of this life are only temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory. Father, we have so much to look forward to in eternity with you. I pray that you would grant us eyes of faith to see real reality. Help us, Father, to embrace your providence and your sovereignty. We thank you for working in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ and pray, our Father, we would not resist what you are doing, but that we would embrace it as your best for us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.